Mighty God and everlasting Father, we thank you for your grace, your mercy, your wonderful hand. We ask, O God, that you would aid us this morning now as we look to your word, as we look to be fed from your word, that we might have the nourishment we need to make it through the week day by day. We ask that you would attend us by the power of the Holy Spirit, that you would enliven our hearts and our minds to receive the word, that it might be hidden in our heart, that we might not sin against you. We also pray for the preaching of the word, that it would be attended by the power of the Holy Spirit, that unction may appear in it, that it may be glorifying to you. We pray that you would bless us in the preaching and hearing, and we ask that it would be glorifying to Christ, and we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. We look to Genesis chapter 1, in verse 1, the scriptures say, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And when we deal with this God who has created all things, we've seen that he's a righteous judge, we've seen that he's just, we've seen that he's holy, We've seen that he's sovereign, and this morning we're going to look at the book of Genesis as it demonstrates that God is the good God, and what that means. I want to ask that question first, what does it mean to be good? Webster defines good as anything that is virtuous, righteous, and commendable. We have good food, and good friends, and a good car, or a good home, things that we set upon them that have admirable qualities. But the goodness of God is that where in his self-revelation or his self-manifestation, he's thought of in two ways. First, absolutely and in himself as supremely good and perfect and the only good because he is good originally, perfectly and immutably that way, but also because he is outwardly good, he is beneficent towards his creatures. So he is good inwardly and he is good outwardly. In the first way, God is good in his being. And that simply means that which is right according to his character. God is benevolent, generally in his indiscriminate providence over the earth. Secondly, the sun still shines, the moon still revolves around the earth. Those are good acts. Those are good things. That means that God does not act with evil or malice. So inwardly, he always acts according to his nature. He's always good. In the second way that God is good, it extends to his creatures. And it extends to his creatures in three different ways. By preservation, by providence, and by election. First, he preserves both man and beast in their stations of life. Cows, bugs, birds, men, children, Whales, 
All of them are upheld by his power. He's good in doing that. When he created everything in the first couple of chapters in Genesis, indeed, he said everything was very good. After the fall, though, cows do not become bad. They do not become evil. They are still upheld. God continues to sustain them. Even wicked men, after the fall, are upheld in their beings. God does not instantaneously destroy them. So, in his indiscriminate providence, he makes apples grow on trees, and people eat those apples. He makes the rain fall, and people are affected in various ways by the rain. He makes the sun shine, and people are affected in various ways by the sun. God, in making apples, is good. Making apples is not evil. He also communicates his goodness to his elect. Abraham was called a friend of God. God communicated his goodness to Abraham, so Abraham would receive the greatest amount of happiness that he was capable of receiving at that time. The goodness of God produces all the happiness to be gained in all the universe, and that's what Genesis 1 and 2 is demonstrating to us, even as we begin to look at that in the next few coming weeks. He saw that it was all good. God creates everything, and everything that he created, he created good. And even now, in the manner in which a good God relates to those who are not elect, he even gives good things. But the intention behind those things is of another design. It's different with his elect, in which God intends for their good, every good thing that he gives them. But when we deal with those who are ultimately non-elect, the good things that God gives them, and they are good things like apples and cows and grass and trees and sunshine and rain, are for another design. God gave Esau a father, and that was a good thing. He gave Esau a home, and that was a good thing. He gave Esau a mother, and that was a good thing. He gave Esau a brother, and that was a good thing. He gave him family. He gave him talents. He gave him livestock. He even gave him every breath that comes out of his mouth. But Esau was not one of God's elect. And the ultimate disparity of his non-election demonstrates God's intention in giving Esau good things. Their intention is far different than for Jacob. And we'll talk about what that means in a moment. Thus, the goodness of God serves two functions among the divine perfections of God. First, in summary, it demonstrates his being. And secondly, it is the primary affection of God's divine will. Even when God is just, that is good. So it's inwardly and outwardly. All happiness comes from God who is good. And it's to manifest his glory. It's to demonstrate the highest moral excellence that his creatures should desire. 
and it's to give his elect and all renewed creation the highest attainment of blessedness in him that they can receive. So we ask, does Genesis teach that God is good in these ways? And we'll see that this is true. First, God created everything as good and affirmed afterwards that it was in fact good. Genesis 1.4 says, And God saw the light and that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. He did this with the earth and the sea, trees that yield fruit, the sun and the moon, the sea creatures, the beasts of the field, everything. Everything was good. Genesis 1.31 Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. Everything God initially made before sin entered the world was very good. There was at this time nothing that existed that was not good, which is an amazing thought. God in and of himself was good, and everything that he created was good. Later, iniquity would be found in Lucifer, the light bearer, who now was not bearing very much light, and instead, pride was found in him, iniquity was found in him, and that was transmitted by deception to Adam and Eve, and sin was ultimately found in them, and that which was very good became very bad. But God not only created everything good, but as we see after the fall, and before the fall, Things that weren't complete or that could not be gained the highest degree of happiness, God would correct and make even better. He made them more good. Genesis 2.18, and the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. And I will make a helper comparable to him. So it wasn't good for Adam to be alone. Everything done up to this point was perfect, but God, not, God had not finished his creation. It wasn't completed. It wasn't perfect in the way that it should be. And so he corrects that which is not good and makes that which is good even better. Throughout Genesis, he commands men to do good. Genesis two sixteen and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree in the garden you may freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. From the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. It was good to tell Adam not to eat of the wrong tree and eat of the right tree. But that's not grace, because grace is specific to the, to the problem of sin and misery. But this is God being good. This is the goodness of God extending to the happiness of the creature. In Genesis chapter 4, in verse 7, after the fall, he says to Cain, If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. And its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. So, he desires all that which is good and wants Cain to do well. Simply because men fall, God is not going to stop talking to men as if they're not. Even though men fall, he's still going to talk to them in a manner in which... They must do good, even though they are unable to do it. God opposes everything that is not good. Listen to Genesis 6, 5 to 7. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart 
was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. He destroyed what was in opposition to that which was good. He stands in opposition to everything that is not good. Genesis 48, 15 to 16. And he blessed Joseph and said, God, before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has fed me all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from evil, bless the lads. The angel of the Lord redeemed him from evil. God stands in opposition to evil. We also find in Genesis that he provides good rewards to his servants. In Genesis 30 and verse 20. And Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will dwell with me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. In Genesis 26, 28. But they said, we have certainly seen that the Lord is with you. That's when Abimelech was talking to Isaac. Abraham was told that God himself was his exceedingly great reward. So he provides good things to his servants, good rewards to his servants. And he also, as we see, decrees goodness as the final outcome of his works. Genesis 50 and verse 20. But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, in order to bring it about to this day to save many people alive. Though evil is in the world, God still decrees goodness as the final outcome of all of his works. So Genesis, and we could spend a considerable amount of time seeing over and over again the good things that God does, but the doctrine of God's goodness communicated to his creatures is a very important doctrine that we can glean from Genesis. Let's look at that. The Westminster Confession, the shorter and the larger catechism say this. Here's question four. What is God? God is spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being. Wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Now, the question that pops up immediately is, where is love? Doesn't it say that God is love too? Why didn't they put that there in his being? Well, love is the communication of God's goodness. And that isn't going to come until later when we are in a covenantal relationship with Christ, the mediator. So there's a difference when we talk about the doctrine of God as God being good and how he is good and how God is love and how he communicates that love. God is good. He is goodness itself. And that is a different relationship than being loving, which is reserved for those he sets his special affection on, for his elect. When dealing with goodness, we're talking about God's indiscriminate actions over all creation that are consistent with his being. God is not an uncontrollable wave of goodness that splashes upon everything and everyone without any rhyme or reason. God is very purposeful in everything that he does. 
So first, God is indiscriminately and providentially good to everything in preserving and directing all things. That's one of the things that he does that's good. He preserves and directs everything. That's the relationship of God to his objects in the created order. For instance, Psalm 145 and verse 9 says, The Lord is good to all, and his tender mercies over all his works. God's work over all creation demonstrates his indiscriminate providence for creation itself, in which he follows all things. He preserves everything in their being. He continues the species of everything in all things. He concurs with them in their distinct offices. He opens the womb that they may reproduce. See, all of those things are good things. Even when the wicked have children, having children in and of itself is a good thing. Apples and cows in and of themselves are good things. We are not deists where God has created things and then suddenly leaves the earth in and of itself. But God is not redemptively good to everyone. That's different than God being indiscriminately providential over all things. God is not redemptively good to everyone. The psalmist says, truly, God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. Romans 2 and verse 4 says, or, you dis or do you despise the riches of his goodness? Forbearance and long-suffering, knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? That's a very interesting passage in Romans 2. The Jews who judge Gentile transgressions will be condemned, not merely because they judge Gentiles, but because they practice the very evil things that they're criticizing the Gentiles about. That's what he says in verse 1 in, in Romans 2. And then Paul reminds the Jews in verses 2 to 5 of truths that they should know. God's judgment of the Jews is righteous and according to the truth. For surely he's not going to, to spare them for violating the law. That's what he says in verse 2. The Jews should hardly think that their covenantal and ethnic status will spare them from God's wrath. For then the worst sort of lawlessness would be permissible. And that's what he's saying in verses 3 to 4. You can't do that. He's telling the Jews. This is shown in direct violation of the law, which is God's special revelation to them in verse 4. That is the goodness of God to them. Persistence in evil reveals a hard heart that is destined to experience God's wrath on the day of the Lord. And that's what he ultimately tells them in verse 5. So when he says to them, or do you despise the riches of his goodness? He's talking about the law that... God has given his chosen people. God does not save everyone. And thus, he is not good in that way to everyone. Proverbs 16, 4 says, The Lord has made all for himself. Yes, even the wicked for the day of doom. There are the righteous in which he communicates his goodness and love. And then there are the wicked in which he communicates his goodness. Apples are good. Having children is good. Having a home is good. Fathers and mothers are good. But there's something wrong. 
There's something wrong that happens with the wicked and those things. Because they are fallen, because they are always, with every intent in the thoughts of their hearts, evil, continually. They take those good things and they use them for God's decreed intention in their lives. And we're going to find out what that means. We have a problem, though. And thinking about these things, and thinking about the very fact that God is good, we have the problem of pleasure. We have the problem of pleasure. Not the problem of evil, but the problem of pleasure. Many philosophers say, because God is good, then he's not all-powerful. And if he's not all-powerful, then he's not good. Because suffering is incompatible with an omnipotent God. If God were good and he were all-powerful, he would never allow suffering. But the answer to the problem of suffering and wickedness and evil in the world is the problem of sin. God ordains sin. And sin has been decreed by God to bring about certain glorifying purposes to his end. If there weren't any suffering or evil in a world riddled with sin, then there would be a problem. But because there is sin, and he has decreed that it would be so, and he has decreed that he's not going to take care of it right now, because he has other greater purposes in mind than satisfying your problem of pleasure, say to the philosopher, there is no problem of evil. The real problem in a sin-laden world is why there is pleasure, or why there is goodness. Men ought to be constantly amazed that in a sin-riddled world there is still the outward, temporary acts of pleasure. Ask any adulterer if sex is pleasurable. Ask any food addict if ice cream is pleasurable. People love pleasure. America is characterized by being entertained, which is pleasurable. But how can there be pleasure in a sinful world? It is because creation was originally shaped by a good God, and remnants of that goodness remain very evident. And God continues in his providence to uphold those things, which is why in Genesis, in the covenant that he makes with Noah, he makes it not only with Noah, but with every living thing, that he will continue to uphold the world in his indiscriminate providence. For men, though, this pleasure turns against them. If the good things God created are used for selfish and wicked ends. In other words, anything that men do that is not primarily for the glory of the Creator is sin, even though they find pleasure in it. And it will be for them, it will become a curse. This is what the Bible calls filling up the measure of sin. God used these good things he has placed in the world as that which prepares wicked men for the pit of hell. Apples in and of themselves are good. But apples used in the wrong way by wicked men to not glorify the creator are sin. God prepares men to glorify him there. While men continue in sin, they are filling the measure set to them. 
It's like a glass. You have a glass that's an empty glass. It's a fallen glass, a fallen man. And the water that is put into that glass represents other sins that he commits. And it only has a certain level to go to. And when it hits the rim of that glass, God calls them to judgment. This is the work in which they spend their whole lives. They begin in their childhood, and if they live to grow old in sin, they still go on with that work of filling up their sins. It is the work in which every day of their lives is given to. They fill up their sins before God until God says, enough. And then judgment is ensued. Genesis 15 and 16. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here. Talking about the people coming back from Egypt. But listen to what he says. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. There's a certain level to which God will put up with the Amorites. And then he will judge them. And then he will call his people back. In 1 Thessalonians 2.16, Paul talks about the Jews. In which he says, they always, or so as always, to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. That is what they do always. They always exist to fill up the measure of their sins. So, the pleasure that wicked men find as good and hearty are really used by God in their lives as that which compounds their guilt and heaps up wrath for the day of wrath. And the disparity of that event demonstrates and proves the intention of God's will for them. When God has an apple tree grow in somebody's backyard who is non-elect, the apple tree in and of itself is good, but God's intention for them in that tree will be to their evil and to their demise. In a different way, though, for the elect, God is proactively good for us. Good things for the elect are, in fact, good things. He specially privileges his elect with spiritual and saving blessings. For example, he pardons their iniquities, which is a good thing. Psalm 25 and verse 11. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. He heals their spiritual diseases. Isaiah 53 and verse 5. But he was wounded for our transgression. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes were healed. He sanctifies their nature. Leviticus 21 and 23. For I, the Lord, sanctify them. He hears and answers their prayers. Genesis 30 and verse 6. Then Rachel said, God has judged my case. And he has also heard my voice and given me a son. It's a good thing. He bears with their infirmities. Matthew 12.20 A bruised reed he will not break. And a smoking flax he will not quench. He accepts worship from them. John 4.23 But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. He supports them and delivers them from temptations. Hebrews 4.15 For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, 
but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. He sympathizes with us. Second Peter 2.9 Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations. He blesses us and supports us. He is good to us in delivering us from temptations. He directs and guides them in their difficulties. Psalm 23.3 He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. In Psalm 23, 6, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So in his goodness, he desires to impart himself freely to his chosen people. And that translates as his love. By identifying God as good, Scripture sets him utterly apart from any malice, Cruelty and harshness. It shows him to his elect to be kind, liberal, worthy of trust, and full of grace towards his people. And it is a blessing that God is unchangeably so. Unchangeably and ultimately love, mercy, grace, long-suffering. These are all gracious affections that flow from the goodness of God to his elect people. Now... With all of that said, we want to apply that God is good to us. In comparing God's goodness to men's goodness, human beings are considered with God's goodness in three ways. When human nature is considered in itself, it is good as with the rest of the created order. But God gives creation its attribute of goodness because they were created by him. That's why they're good in relationship to him. When men are considered in their present condition as fallen, they are utterly depraved. And they fall under Christ's condemnation. And that none are good in comparison to God. No, not one, except for God alone. That's why Paul says in Romans 11, in considering that, therefore consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell, severity, but toward you, goodness. If you continue in his goodness, otherwise you also will be cut off. So men in their fallen condition are also seen as fallen in comparison to the goodness of God, and unless they repent, the severity of God will fall on them. Human beings, though, can also be considered good in and through the redemptive work of Christ when their image is restored. They were good in the beginning, but they fell, but now God restores them in Christ. And that's not something for men to boast in, for the restored image is wholly the work of Christ and communicated to us through the Spirit. Everything, then, from beginning to end, is only good as it relates to God, and as God communicates goodness to his people. They must then search for that which is good in God and Christ alone. And that is ultimately set in Christ's redemptive work. He restores the fallen order. He restores that which was evil and instead brings forth goodness. Even in the atonement, creation groans for the change that all things would be brought back again to being very good. And we see that prophesied in a certain extent in the crown of thorns that Jesus has on the head of Christ. On his head when he dies on the cross. Remember, he had the thorns. It's not only that he died, 
but that it also represented the very curse in which he was redeeming men from. Remember he told Adam in the beginning that the thorns and thistles would grow out of the ground? That was the curse of God on that which was good. Well, Jesus redeems that back. Even creation will be redeemed back to be good. So Christians, they should be searching every day for the highest good only found in God alone. The good is to be desired only found in God, only found in Christ, and it's communicated to us by the Holy Spirit. God enjoys his own good. He loves himself in that way. And he should because he is the highest good. But he desires to communicate that goodness to his elect people. And he demonstrates it to him. God alone is good. God alone is to be enjoyed as good. Everything that is enjoyed is enjoyed because it is good in relationship to God himself. And the goodness of God is to be desired because in and of himself, he is the highest good. Matthew 19, verses 16 and 17. Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So he said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. What he was telling him is, you don't just look at the outward things that people do and say that they're good because they do good things, because only one is good and the goodness is only communicated from that one. That is God. Having a desire after Christ with interest in him as the highest good is what we should be after. Not just apples and a home and a mother and a father. Not just the gifts, but the giver of the gifts. Because the goodness of God alone is able to satisfy the soul of redeemed men. There's nothing else that can satisfy us. It satisfies the appetite of the hungry Christian. Psalmist says in 145, 16 to 19, You opened your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways, gracious in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He also will hear their cry and save them. And even after that, it will continue to satisfy the Christian. That's why Isaiah says with a, a rhetorical question in Isaiah 55, 2, why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for that which does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat that which is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. And he's talking about him. The soul should satisfy itself in God. He is abundantly good. And God works goodness for us in everything that we are involved in in everything that he does for us. That's why even when we talk about good works, the Westminster Confession, as we've read in the past, their ability to do good works is not at all of themselves, but wholly from the Spirit of Christ. And that they may be enabled thereunto, besides the graces they have already received, there is required an actual influence of the same Holy Spirit to work in them to will and to do of his good pleasure. Yet, are they not hereupon to grow negligent, as if they were not bound to perform any duty unless upon special motion of the Spirit, but they ought to be diligent in stirring up the grace of God that is in them? So, we should be stirring up, looking to the goodness of God. And that, in turn, the Holy Spirit will stir up in us that we could see and taste of his goodness. 
Jesus says in John 15, 4-5, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. So it's all through what God does in his people that they are able to do anything good. And he works all goodness for us. He works goodness in every situation, everywhere, for his elect. That doesn't mean every situation is good, but that he will work ultimately good from every situation. Romans 8, 31 and 32. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? And all things are all those things surrounding salvation. Everything we need to fulfill the call of the gospel on our life. All of those things are good things. God is to be loved. He is to be honored. He is to be praised. He is to be served because he is the highest good. Psalm 107.32 let them exalt him also in the assembly of the people and praise him in the company of elders. Psalm 31:19. Oh, how great is your goodness, which you have laid up for those who fear you, which you have prepared for those who trust you in the presence of the sons of men. And Psalm 65:11. You crown the year with your goodness and your paths drip with abundance. What does having a knowledge of God's goodness give us? Think about it. God is only and properly the object of our love and admiration. It's all. He is it. We recognize and are made aware of what is good and what should be done according to God's nature. We know that in difficulties, God's goodness will support everything in us, for us, around us, knowing he works all things for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. God's goodness demonstrates to us the evil and wickedness and all sinful acts. So he shows us what we should do and what we shouldn't do. Yet you should ask yourself, is God good to you? And why do you think so? Are afflictions good to you? Difficulties good for you? Suffering, affliction, and difficulties will press us to consider whether we really believe God is good or he is not. Whether or not what he does is good or whether or not. God is good, the scriptures demonstrate his goodness, and we should think through how good he is to us every day, in every way, all the time. Let's pray and ask that the Lord would grant us a clear sight of his goodness. Mighty God and everlasting Father, we thank you that you are the good God. We thank you, O Lord, that you are good to us because you are the Father who saves us, who changes us, who gives us Christ, who aids us, who gives us all the benefits of salvation. We thank you so much for that. You truly are good to us. We pray, O God, that you would continue to pour out your goodness to us and have our hearts and minds focused upon your goodness. You are the highest good, the greatest good, the most wonderful good to us in everything. Help us, O oh God, to see that clearly and aid us to love you as the good God of the Bible. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.
Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.